Well, hey, everyone. It's so nice to see you. Thank you for joining us this morning and this afternoon, depending on where you are. I'm so excited for today's event and, uh, well, welcome. My name is Barton Seaver. I am a chef, author, proud father, husband, and resident of the jagged, ragged, delicious coast of Maine, from where I am joining you from today with our guest, who is in New Mexico, the legendary Queen of Greens, Deborah Madison. Um, She has long been uh, someone that I've looked up to. Her books uh, have been a source of inspiration and knowledge and helped to me to curate my own ideas on food and that she is sitting with us today for you is uh, is such an honor and uh, something that I am very grateful for. And those of you who have joined me before, you know that I host a fairly regular Thursday afternoon events. Um, I am also the chief instructor for the Seafood Literacy course here on Ruby. But uh, those of you who joined me before know that I like to start off uh, every one of these episodes by sharing with you something that I am grateful for because gratitude is, in fact, the most important ingredient in any recipe, and feeding people is an act of love and kindness. So, I'd just like to start it off with that, and, and this will be a topic of conversation uh, here and today because I've learned this a lot of this from Deborah. But uh, things that I'm grateful for, that many today, the the trepidatious hope of spring has turned on uh, turned the corner into the full-on exuberant ebullience of of blossoming, and all of my fruit trees, with the exception of two apricots, the fruit has set. It is going to be a banner year. Uh, my wife and I have also been saving for a long time and have finally been able to uh, flip the switch and go solar. So that happened this week. And my 10-month-old baby boy is on hour four of his morning nap right now. These are all things that I am grateful for. And I hope that uh, as part of this exercise today that you can acknowledge something you're grateful for. But top of that list is Deborah your presence here today. So thank you so very much for, for joining us. Tell us a little bit about where you are today. I'm in New Mexico and um, our spring has already sprung, it's hot already. Um, I have, I, we have no water this year. So no. I'm grateful for the gray water that I save <laughs> and bring out in a bucket every morning to keep my things going. <laughs> Yes. Well, and, and you have quite many things going. You're, you're now a very avid gardener and food gardener. I am an avid gardener, but I mean, I have many more seeds that I'm going to be able to plant this year, I think. Are, are you now you, you're involved with Seed Savers and, and a number of different organizations uh, around the dignity of farming, as well as just the, the process of it. Um, but are, are you a seed catalog fiend uh, in the way that I am? I mean, I know that New Mexico has some pretty harsh winters. Do you do you thrive on the optimism of the seed catalog and dark February nights? We always are optimistic, aren't we? We can't help it. <laughs> Come spring, you know, we just we're so happy that it's here no matter what, you know. Um, I really want to focus on seeds that are from this area that have a chance of adapting more. Um, than anything else. So my seed catalogs are limited compared to what they were in the past, but I still have them and I still always believe the, the, the hype that, oh, this is easy to grow and it will, you know, repay you many times in the future and so forth. I put the seeds in, nothing comes up. Well, you know, that's how it is. Yeah, I, I always um, marvel a little bit at the, at the 
the the literature that is a seed catalog, how they come out. There, it's it's a delicate capitalism versus nurture and nature uh, sort yeah. of balance that they try and pull off. Like, yes, of course, it's easy, and it grows the biggest dahlia you've ever seen, plate size, etc. Right. It's like <laughs> it's like that's wonderful, but did we need that? Huh. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Anyway, well, uh, thanks for that interlude there. Uh, so this is the, the Around My Table Kitchen series and just these, these fun, wonderful conversations that we, we have with people who have so much to offer. This, the Ruby family, uh, you know, Ruby is a huge online culinary school, and we have lots of different sort of constituencies within it, from professional cooks working at uh, you know, hotels and cruise ships, et cetera, people advancing themselves uh, but also lots of home cooks, people who are interested in health and wellness, uh, the Fork Silver Knives community uh, around whole food, plant-based cooking, et cetera. So uh, on the call, well, on, the, on the Zoom here today, we have a lot of different uh, of those constituencies represented. And you well, <laughs> your history, I, I mean, you are, you are one of the people that not just wrote the story, but invented the language in fact of what vegetable based (laughs) cuisine is and uh you lay all of that out very well you know in your latest book an onion in my pocket your Ah, memoir okay Um, which i have to be honest had a very lovely dust jacket on it until a bird uh sullied it uh just a few minutes before (laughs) we went on so i have have my copy here see there you go there you go you can always I always rely on an author to have that. So uh, just tell us, if you would, uh, I mean, you were there at the very beginning of all this. Tell us about your days in California at Greens. And, and well, sort of- I did that in the book, and they were very, very hard days. Um, I felt very unsupported at Greens, actually, in a lot of ways. Um, but it was a very exciting time in the world of food anyway, um, because – Everybody was so excited about what was happening, and they were so turned on, and and um, and it was a rich period of time. You know, we cooked richly. We used a lot of butter and cream and cheese. Everybody did. You know, it was the late seventies, eighties, and uh, but greens was fun, and and in a way, and when I look at it now, I see how much our food has changed. You know, whoever makes a wilted spinach salad or, you know, black bean chili, besides me, I still use those recipes actually. And I like them. They're good. They work. But um, it really is gone now, that food. It's over. And other things have taken its place. And and I'm glad to see that actually. It's in evolution, as we say. Well, it was really incredible to, to read in the memoir. And by the way, the memoir, I, not only just as a work of interest for me as a cook and amateur anthropologist around food in America, uh, but just as a, a, a work of literary effort, uh, this is gorgeous. I mean, it, it's gorgeous writing. It's uh, incredibly deft weaving of time frames and various relevances of periods in your life together and uh, just congratulations from a writer to a writer like wow you 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 really you really nailed it with this uh, it was 
just <laughs> the sensuous the sensuousness of the memory uh the style the language itself um you know, and uh, you were, as you described at, at great length in the book, a, a, a practicing Zen, uh, and at one point a Zen uh, priest. Uh, mm-hmm. And so much of this book is this incredible effort of yours that seemed to sort of whittle away the artifice around cuisine of cooking, whittle away the uh, the ego around it, and the even the prejudices and the preconceptions of things, and. Uh, you know, if I may say, or sort of in summary, so much of the legacy of your work is that you have elevated vegetarian cuisine, and we can talk about vegetarian versus vegetable cuisine a little later, but uh, from what you described at sort of the outset of your work and efforts as a subclass of cooking or a subclass of eating, sort of the cooking that was missing something, uh, being used. <laughs> uh, but you have this wonderful quote in there that you've spent 30 years lift, trying to lift vegetarian cooking out, out of this terrible drabness. Um, and you've so succeeded in that with all of your books. And uh, I think this one uh, foremost of them. So uh, to everyone watching, please pick up this book and any of her 13 other books, 14 in total. Um, so I guess a question for this would be, how did you come up with the process of recipe formulation, of figuring out what was what made a recipe good, uh, what made it lasting, uh, and where did you find your inspirations? Wow. Well, if you go back to greens, you know, I was very nervous about um, what we had to offer because... I was really afraid that people would go away hungry if I didn't put more cheese or something, you know, in it that was rich in protein and so forth and so on like that. But um, where I found my inspiration, that's a good I, That's a good question. I did a lot of reading. Um, I worked at Chez Panisse and certainly Alice inspired me a lot. Um, for recipes and for the idea that food should just be beautiful and which I always believed anyway um, I loved that you know I have to tell you Barton that I actually started this book as long ago as 15 years ago when I got um, you know <laughs> I received a, a foundation grant to go to Hedgebrook and write and at that time um, I was very upset that I hadn't gone to graduate school and gotten a PhD in something, in anything, just to be more useful in the world. And that still does bother me sometimes, but it's way too late for that. <laughs> um, but when I reread what I had written a year later, I couldn't stand it. It was so whiny and so mopey and so awful. I just, I wanted to throw it out, you know. And, but I decided that there, was, there had to be something more in my life, you know, that was more positive. So I kept working at it and working and working. And, and finally, you, you, the book you have in your hand is the book that I wrote. Um, and I didn't go too much into the PhD thing, I don't think. Did I do it at all? Maybe not. No. But originally, I wanted to call this book 
on my vegetarian problem because it was a problem for me. I never wanted to go on the on on a soapbox and say that vegetarian cooking was the only way or anything like that because I've I've been a teacher for too long and I've seen what people do and they change. They change whether they want to or not. I've had students who say things like, I was a vegetarian for 20 years and now I can't stop thinking about turkey. Well, why? You know, maybe you should get some and find out why. You know, um, we change. We just change. My husband had cancer recently and since then, he wants meat like crazy. And, you know, I, it's okay with me if I have it or don't have it, but I have to respect his background and, you know, his desire and what makes him feel good. So I cook anything and everything, including it's, lots of vegetables. It's interesting. I've, I've long thought uh, just around the concept of the persistent well, the capitalism of reinventing the diet, uh, there, there's a whole lot of money to be made in reinventing diet. But I've long thought that this, the belly that has taken millions of years to evolve, knows a lot better than any ideas that we can have, which have taken only a lifetime and to evolve. And, and of course, that, that whatever which we read. So that idea of listening to your body is, is I think, so so vitally important. Uh, unfortunately, I, I don't think many people have ever had the training in really understanding what the language of the body is uh, and learning those self-perception tools and mechanisms. Uh, and I, I, can, I certainly can't claim to be an expert on it and certainly not an expert on your experience. Um, expert in your experience, which is enormous and important and, and fishing and fish, the whole world of fish is something that we need to think about a lot. Well, well, thank you. For that. Uh, so one of the things you, you mentioned about vegetarian cuisine at the beginning uh, was that it was brown. It was dense. And, I'm sorry. And, I didn't hear you. That it was dense and brown. Uh, oh and, yeah. <laughs> and that so much of what you tried to bring to it was, was color and light and diversity. Uh, what yes, was that process true. like? Um, uh, it was not so hard because it's naturally how I cooked, you know, and and people responded to it very positively. So I'm I was quite fortunate in that respect. But it was hard because it was brown and it was very very brown for a long time. And I think it's because we didn't have exciting vegetables then. We really didn't. Um, Seed Savers Exchange hadn't really started yet. I mean, it was four years into its beginnings, I think, when green started. Um, and when I look back at things that I grew up eating or my mom talked to us about or she's, you know, uh, what she cooked. My mother was not a very good cook, I have to say. Um, it was brown. You know, it just was. And... Um, there's nothing to be done for that except to nourish and, you know, this whole thing with seeds and gardens and so forth that we have. And I hope we haven't lost it during this last year of the pandemic. So a big thing to me, and, and you know, I think you have some very astute and incredibly learned points around, you know, vegetarian not being 
inextricably linked to healthy. Um, and you know, you pointed out that a diet of Coke and potato chips is vegetarian. Um, yeah. But yeah. that <laughs> diversity really is the key. And, and I think that this is, you know, foundational to health is diversity in terms of how we use our bodies, what we put into our bodies. It's certainly the foundation of a good education. Uh, it's diversity is the foundation of a healthy society. Uh, but it's also the foundation of a sustainable relationship with our ecosystems. Uh, and you were talking just earlier now about you know, seeds that are native to to your region and bioadaptive. Um, so could could you talk about some of the your efforts around you know sort of how eating seasonally has evolved through your time uh, in restaurants and as an educator? Well, I think it has evolved tremendously, and um, it, it seems to be a password right now, eating in season, eating locally, and so forth. Um, and at, at the time of greens, we, didn't, we couldn't grow everything at our farm, even though we had a farm and we grew a lot of our food. Um, we just couldn't do it all because it was very foggy, very cold. And being in California, you know, we we drew from um, farmers inland like Modesto and Davis and Sassoon Valley and places like that um, for hot weather produce, for things that like the hot weather. So I always felt we were a farm-driven menu rather than local or seasonal or any of those things. Um, I mean, if local, if, if food is local, it's also in season. It has to be. It's, it, there's no two ways about that. If it's local, it's in season. Um, what we're going to do here as we go into a drought and we have more, no more trees and so forth, I have no idea. But hopefully people will work with seeds in this area. Um, to develop seeds that have acclimatized to our drought, which is very severe right now. Um, I'm, I'm looking actually out at my garden as I speak to you, and I see nothing but green, 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 but I know everything just bloomed its heart out this year because I feel like it was the, maybe it knows, the plants know it's the last year. I don't know if they do or not, but I mean, we had lots and lots of blossoms like you have too, but it sounds like you're wetter too. Yeah. So another thing that, that is foundational to the Zen mindset practice, but also to uh, good cuisine, uh, which I found great parallel to, uh, you know, very interesting parallel in, in your writing round was, uh, you know, one of, one of the things that it experiences that you described very early on about, being asked to consider the 72 labors by which rice comes to our plate. Uh, and it struck me that this entire book sort of represents the 73rd labor of your trying to make sense of it and maybe then the 74th labor of you bringing it forth into the world. Uh, can you talk about that? mindfulness aspect and not necessarily the that Zen 72 practice, labors? but um, yeah, just, yeah. just sort of, uh, of how that, how that manifests on the plate and in well, our hungers. Yeah. 
Sure. Um, I love that chant. The 72 labors brought us this food. We should know how it comes to us. And that's when I realized, actually, that I know nothing really about food and how it comes to us. Um, since then, I think I've every book I've written has explored that in some degree. And I'm working on a book right now called 72 Labors, as a matter of fact, um, which is looking very closely at at certain vegetables. I could look at all vegetables as far as that goes, but just a few vegetables and fruits like dates, which have a fascinating story um, in our culture. And uh, what else? Um, endive, which is um, a vegetable in two parts, which many people don't know. They, they just see it and they think, oh, there it is, and so on and so forth. And it's, um, it's actually much more complex than we give it credit for. And during that chant, I when I realized how little I knew, I spoke with Wendy Johnson, who was the gardener at then at, at Tassajara. And she was she said she was telling me about how she very patiently planted corn seeds or some kind of vegetable seed, maybe zucchini or something, so many inches apart. And then she turned and looked and she saw the crows were digging them up and eating them as she went. And that was her her part of 72 Labors, I think, was finding out as a gardener how much it took to produce food for us. And it always does. And I think we're beginning to really see that now um, as farms are pulling back, as we have less water, as people are nervous about the pandemic and so on and so forth like that. How does how does that mindfulness uh manifest on the plate uh you just as i said earlier just in our hungers uh you you wrote and i've experienced this and i think everybody has experienced this to to some extent at least i i hope they have uh that need begets gratitude uh and when we are famished when we are physically aware of our situation uh the gift of food uh, even the simplest, that of white rice, uh, becomes a little bit more delicious, if not wholly different in our perception of it. Um, you're right. I think you're right about that, actually. And um, I don't know about mindfulness per se. You know, it's not something I thought about then, you know, at Tassajara or at Greens particularly. Um, you know, we just cooked, we just did it. <laughs> and I hope it was mindful in some way, but, it, but there were probably lots of times when it wasn't too. <laughs> but I think you're right. When, when you are, when you're feeling hungry, you know, you do feel very differently about food and gratitude and all that comes to life in a way that doesn't happen if you don't give it a chance to whether it's through a mindful practice or, or through actual hunger or, or what. But I think you're right. That's a very good point. I'm, I am very fortunate in, in my life. I have never experienced hunger, uh, the dehumanizing state mm -hmm. of having less than what you need just biologically. I, I grew up in a community where hunger was very prevalent. So, um, that that stayed with me and, and just in terms of my appreciation of food. So in terms of, of 
the sustainability. You know, one thing that I, I, I learned in my career was that my definition of sustainability is the endurance of thriving humans. Uh, I, uh, we are, of course, wholly dependent upon resilient ecosystems for our existence, our identity, our cultures, our economies. But uh, you know, that idea of that very personalized sustainability, the, the end result of a meal and all of those 72 labors that brings it to you is that I endure that I am able. Um, what, what's been your experience with sort of melding of sustainability narratives uh, as w- along with sort of just the, the practice uh, and the, just the day-to-day of what you've done through the years? Sustainability narratives. Hmm. I'm not sure I've really thought about that in the way that you're describing. Um, I know as a gardener, I grow what likes to grow here, what likes to live. And it's silly to do anything else because it's not sustainable, really. Um, So what likes to live here in the desert and very alkaline soil that's very dry are kinopods. And that's why I wrote Vegetable Literacy in a way, was discovering what really worked here um, as as a gardener not as a cook, but as a gardener. And that has been my, my, you know, my focus for a long time. Um, sustainability. Interesting. Hmm. Well, I mean, when I think of local flavors, uh, a book I wrote a long time ago about farmer's markets when I was managing our farmer's market, you know, I did think about it then. Um, how can people keep doing it, do it, and do it, and do it, especially when they're not well rewarded? I think part of it is the optimism that we feel every spring, you know, that gets us going, and then we're into it whether we want to or not. But um, I've known a lot of farmers who have gotten old and who've quit and who are dis- discouraged, you know, and are there new farmers to take their place? Um, that's really the question, I think. Uh, a lot of times when you're faced with discouragement and so forth. Um, sustainability, I don't know how to answer that. I have to think about it. And of course, this is an interview where you're hoping I'm going to you know, spew something off. But I haven't really thought about it. I mean... Doing greens, it was such so hard to do it day after day after day after day, as you know, getting up and going to work and working and working and working. and You know, you don't even think about that very much. And since then, I've been writing books and, and thinking of the home cook and what they need to know and um, what they need to go by, what they need to know in terms of what's a vegetable or what can be eaten. And, and now I think we're really getting down to brass tacks in a way about sustainability that we haven't been before. You know, as long as it rained in the Midwest and, you know, you could just put out your field of whatever it was and it would be irrigated by the sky. And that was one thing. Now... There's too much rain too early. There's not enough rain later on. And, 
what's sustainable given that situation, I don't know. But I do think one thing um, about this is that we have to quit looking at California as the source of everything, you know, or Kansas as the source of meat, you know, and and start to 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 diversify in a way um, so that we can all be fed more or less locally. And it's crazy to have lettuce, for example, shipped from California back east to where you are. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure something would grow there, if not lettuce, something else. Yeah, I will say yeah. though it's it's nice to have it's nice to have a bag of arugula available to us though. I mean, you know, there's I certainly agree with you know we grow ninety percent of the food that we eat uh, in season here. We haven't yet taken up Elliot Coleman's uh, four season growing strategies for Northern New England uh, that he's pioneered, but uh, you know, it it's going to take a lot of sacrifice to. Um, and this winter, I had a CSA that had nothing but red daikon in it week after week after week and i thought if i see one more red radish like a daikon i'm going to scream you know but i did learn to cook them because i had to and um that seems to be the new thing that's growing year round of course kale was before that and so forth um but yeah that that red daikon did me in <laughs> I, I'm so glad we're we're almost out of that right now. Well, you know, it's interesting that you uh, you know that sustainability wasn't the driving force uh, is what I'm sort of hearing you say. In in the same way that talking with Alice Alice Waters uh, of Japanese fame for everybody who doesn't know her, um, you know, she didn't start a local foods revolution. She started a delicious revolution that happened to rely on local foods um, mm -hmm. be because that was where delicious came from. D duh. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. But, but, but no, not duh. It was a mind blowing <laughs> realization that forever changed the course of cuisine. But inherent in your work is the fact that, uh, through your restaurant greens as part of the, the Zen Center. So this is back 79 through 82, was it, when you were there? That's roughly? when I was there. Yeah. It's still going. It's still yeah. very popular, but I'm not there, obviously. <laughs> I haven't been for a long time. So this was a, a vegetarian restaurant that you pioneered. Uh, that really wasn't a cuisine at, at the time. Uh, and then in your, in your books. So you've been articulating a sustainable, a more sustainable lifestyle, even if you haven't been doing so overtly, but that of, hey, America, eat your vegetables. And it's just, I mean, that's, uh, so I, I have to say, I give you a, a huge amount of credit for that. Uh, but I'll also then ask, how are we going to get America to eat their vegetables? I think there, there, people are eating more vegetables now. Um, of course, we write cookbooks, and we hope that people will use them because that they can learn something um, from a cookbook. Uh, usually, we've spent quite a bit of time with our recipes and and perfecting them and making them work for other people. And and I'm not saying that just about my cookbooks, but about any cookbook. Um, and uh, and some are different than others. As a result of one cookbook, I received a beautiful, beautiful assortment of vegetables from Ohio. 
and um, from Farmer Lee Jones, is that his name? Yeah, Chef's Garden. And um, it was fantastic, you know, to see those. But, you know, I'm wondering, why can't we grow those here? Uh, obviously, ramps don't grow here in the desert. They need wet places, and we shouldn't be eating them unless we travel to where they grow. Um, and hopefully somebody is, sustain, is, is sustainably harvesting them. I think that's, I would use that word a lot with wild foods, um, mushrooms and so forth like that. But um, I don't know. Uh, the delicious revolution is true. I mean, you know, what we have outside of our doors when we grow a little garden is so good and I think that that's really the secret of Chez Panisse's cooking is that is that the food is local and it is delicious all by itself and the re recipes can be very simple um, because of that. I, uh, you, you write about your first uh, dinner at Chez Panisse as a revelatory experience and I, I too had the same thing. And by the time that I had eat, uh, that I first ate at Chez Panisse and my wife uh, and I went out um, maybe eight, nine years ago or so. And you know, I was already a, a chef at this time, but uh, I book published and I, I, I've never been an egotistical person, but I had confidence, you know, and I, I'd been around the block, so to say, uh, you know, enough to kind of, have some, not doubt about it, but sort of what was the staying power of Chez Panisse? You know, is it, is it really, all the simplicity that I'm hearing, of, is it really going to live up to it, up to the hype of it? And I think it's always that simple. I really don't. That's um, true. In fact, what, I, I think it, it, it varies a lot, you know. Um, but I always go to Chez Panisse when I'm in the East Bay, back, in Oakland or Berkeley, um, because I know I can count on it as being excellent. Even when I, I've had meals that are not so, you know, um, I could say they were slightly disappointing, maybe partly because of the simplicity, but, but that's okay. You know, I love that that there's the courage to serve a perfectly ripe peach or plum mm -hmm. for dessert. I mean, that is an eye-opener, really, if you've never done that, and if you've never had fruit that's so good. But when I first went to Chez Panisse, unlike you, I had no, no prior experience, none at all. I mean, you know, I had met Alice, and, and she said, haven't you been to Chez Panisse, as if that would explain a lot of things. And I said, no, I never have. I, I didn't even know if I had heard of it particularly. Um, I was a Zen student, you know. I wasn't interested in that kind of thing, but I did go, and and it was a profound meal, profound experience. And I thought, this is the food I've always wanted to eat, you know, for a long, long, long time. And here it is in Berkeley, right across the bay from where I am. So I went to work there, right away. <laughs> well, and I love the courage that you described in that. And uh, you know, my meal was it was similar. We started off with a. a cream of chanterelle soup, um, you know, very classic French preparation. I mean, it could have come straight out of, uh, you know, LaRousse or Escoffier. Uh, and then the second course was, was an albacore 
tuna, which is not a fish. You know, I, I was running fish restaurants at the time and serving a hundred different species of seafood and, and albacore was not one that even in its freshest, most pristine state was considered to be an upper echelon ingredient. And yet there it was simply grilled with a stew, a ragu of borlotti beans uh, with marjoram uh, and a little aioli and just, I, I, I just, it wasn't the simplicity of it that it so wowed me. It was the courage. It was just the faith in quality, faith in ingredients. And, um, you know, one of the most important lessons that I learned early on in my career is the most important, the most delicious ingredient on any plate is never me. Step back, get off the plate, you know, put yourself as part of the process, not the purpose. Um, Good. And, Good for you. And, and, and that's, that's one of the things that I, I found so compelling uh, about Chez Panisse and, and about your cuisine. Um throughout your throughout your your books and, and etc so so we've got a number of questions coming in um okay from some folks uh so i'd love to get some folks involved and just some of this is just diving into the culinary details so we'll start off with All right. one from sarah v so what are your favorite appetizers when people usually expect cheese and charcuterie board but are vegan uh-huh. I have no idea, but it's not particularly cheese because I love cheese, but it's too filling for an appetizer. You know, um, I like anything with romesco sauce on it. Mm. I think that's so delicious. Um, I try to make a little appetizer to have with drinks every night, you know, when my husband comes home from his studio. And often they're very simple things like fried potato skins and I didn't even know he knew about them or liked them or anything. I was giving, giving them to the dog and he said, no, I like those too. You know, just fry them in a little butter or salt and pepper. They're delicious. (laughs) So that would be one. Um, Appetizers. You know, I don't think about food in the same way probably that a lot of you do. I always have said in my books, Try not to rely too much upon cheese, you know, at the beginning of a meal. Have it more at the end, um, just because it's so filling, you know, it's so very filling. But, um, you know, right now we just sit down to dinner and we had we had a lovely fish last night, actually. We had black cod, which is kind of hard to find here and kind of unusual. And... Um, and it was absolutely delicious. And we had it with, I don't know, just plain old vegetables, broccoli and beet salad and um, like that. But And that was fine. We didn't even have an appetizer, I don't think. But I appreciate the question, and I hope that, that, that it's useful to you. Um, I really do. Well, you mentioned romesco sauce, and I actually have an experiment going on oh. right now. Uh, I, I am a huge fan of romesco ever since living in Spain. Uh, but I, I have um, I, I do a lot of fermented hot sauces during the summer when we have when we have peppers out back. Uh, but I've never tried a fermented romesco, so that's what's going on here. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. Uh, we'll see if I'm still around next week. Yo, I'm and, uh, sure you are, and let me know. <laughs> Let me know how it is. <laughs> we Our season here is so short for peppers and tomatoes. 
you know, especially, and there's always a little Roma tomato or something or Romesco sauce. So I've had to adapt my recipes here in the Southwest to use more canned tomatoes or tomato paste. And because we don't really have good ripe tomatoes and peppers and eggplant, except for maybe three weeks in the late fall, you know, it's very different from a lot of other places like California where I grew up and we had them seems like all the time. Yeah. Yes. Well, uh, living on the coast of Maine, it's the same thing. It's, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to those tomatoes in late September. And, uh, <laughs> we look forward to them too. All three weeks of them. They're delicious. Yeah. I, I grow a lot of garlic because of that. We grow about 1200 heads of garlic on our farm. Wow. And, uh, That's uh, a lot. Seven different varieties. Well, we sell, it's, it's a, it's a, a crop. I want to get the kids into um, <clears throat> a little farm stand on the front lawn here, and um, mm-hmm. you know, just get them involved. And garlic is a good crop for that because it doesn't require a lot of tending, a lot of water, and it lasts. Do you like so. hard neck, hard neck or soft neck garlic? I grow exclusively hard neck, so um, mm-hmm. I just I like the flavors of the rocum balls better than the uh, than the than the soft necks. So they're fiery and good. Yes, the flavors. Yes. Yes, and uh, and it's amazing how different garlics can be. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's it's sort of like saying, yeah, I like Pinot Noir, but like, wow, there's a lot of variation in that statement yeah. there. It's, uh, <laughs> there's a lot to lot to dive into. So, a question from uh, Derek that's quite popular here has been voted up, uh, and he is diabetic, and he's looking for a few quick, easy meals without meat or dairy. Um, he's got a, a challenging work. Uh, environment. I guess he works 12 hours uh, straight overnight outside, so he doesn't have a ways to heat things up. So could you offer a solution or two, just sort of a quick prep, <laughs> nutritious meal for Well, that? I love black bean chili, and it's, it's an old recipe. It's from Greens, and um, I actually redid it in my, in my last cookbook um, called In My Kitchen, and I did it with a different kind of bean, but you could use black beans and they're delicious. And you could keep, if you're vegan or diabetic and you're not having any sour cream in it, leave it out. It's fine. Um, but that's a good meal, I think. And, and it's one that we've used a lot. Um, my husband actually loves it too, much to my surprise, because he did not describe himself as a bean eater at all. Um, so other ideas, gosh, um, not off the top of my head. I always have to think a little bit about people's questions and especially about food, um, which I'm happy to do. You're, you're working all night. Wow. That's a lot. Yeah. And you're diabetic. Yeah. Black bean chili. That, that is one of my yeah, favorites. That I, is good. I, also in terms of beans, I happen to love black eyed peas with mm-hmm. a tahini sauce. And because black-eyed peas originally do come from Asia and, um, you know, from the Middle East and not, they're not a Southern, you know, they weren't, they didn't start out here. And in Greece, you see them a lot. In Turkey, you see them a lot or you see things like that. So I always start out cooking them with allspice and things like that, like I would do here. But then I thought, this tahini sauce would be so good and you could do it with rice as well. I made a list of things that I like. 
um, that I've been cooking masa crepes, crepes with masa in them instead of, or corn flour, but mm -hmm. you know, with a corn thing stuck with, guess what, chard, <laughs> because I like chard and because it grows well here. And red um, daikon. Yeah, and no red daikon, no <laughs> red daikon. <laughs> this year I made a lot of chard and saffron tarts, um, but without the crust because I didn't want that extra caloric thing. <laughs> Whoa, what book is that? It's your book. Yeah, that's what I thought. Look at that. <laughs> yeah. Vegetarian Cooking for Everyone. And now the new Vegetarian yeah. Cooking for Everyone. So yeah, that's uh that that's my I, I was I was gonna quick look up to see if you had that chard recipe in here while you were talking. I do I, have a chard tart in there, but actually without the crust, the um is from in my kitchen. And I love that. I don't even put the almonds in it anymore, which I did to have a little crunch around mm -hmm. the edge. Um, but I don't even do that anymore. I just think it's delicious. But it does use cream, but you don't have to use cream. I mean, I like cream. And um, I'm not a vegan, and I don't have a problem with cream, and except that it's fattening <laughs> and so forth. But you could certainly use milk or malk or, or something along those lines. Yes. But that's that's good, and, and tarts are often good cold as well as yeah. warm. It's interesting you mentioned uh, nuts because I've I've been cooking a, a, a Catalan stew, which is um, chickpeas stewed with you know a spicy, a highly spiced tomato sauce, and then spinach uh, uh, added, added in at the end. In my kitchen, yeah. I have that too. And I've been cooking it with, um, you know, well, you have it in, in here, chickpeas with greens and Moroccan spices, which is very similar. Um, but I've been cooking that and, and adding in uh, just very coarsely chopped whole almonds. Uh, and I found that cooking beans with almonds is, is so satisfying uh, that the almonds rehydrate somewhat and uh, take on so much of that flavor. But as you were saying, they add so much texture. Um, yeah. They but do. also incredible nutrition. So anyway. So they could be almonds or cashews or hazelnuts or, or all kinds of nuts for good too, I think. Yeah. Hazelnuts don't work around this house. I actually met my wife uh, because of an allergy, no, they, a deathly allergy she has to hazelnuts. And I thought, oh, I'm um, so sorry. you know, I sent out a, uh, a nice uh, lingonberry linzer tort with Telegio cheese ice cream, our signature dessert at my restaurant. I mm. sent it out to her because I thought she was very cute. And, um, had to take her up the street to CVS for a Benadryl and a bottle of water. And, um, oh, dear. <laughs> and then I, uh, I asked her out. She said no. And, um, yeah, we got married. So oh. that's that story. Yep. That all worked out. <laughs> I mean, there's a few more details in there, but, uh, you know. Um, yeah. And you now you have a very cute little baby. I've seen him. He's adorable. Oh, he is wonderful. All right, from Chris, uh, a wonderful friend of ours who joins us regularly. Uh, as fresh herbs will soon be abundant in the gardens, what are some herb and vegetable pairings that you particularly like, Deborah? Ah, well, right now, tarragon is just coming in. So I put tarragon in everything. <laughs> I love tarragon. And um, I just planted my epizote, which I'll use with beans for Mexican kinds of dishes um, later in the fall. Do you know that herb? Episode I do. I yeah. haven't used much of it. but It's very funky smelling. Wormwood is this other name, and it doesn't smell very good at all. But once you've cooked with it, it disappears. Um, 
let's see herbs oh i love marjoram and uh, marjoram is is interesting because so many people turn to basil in the summer you know <clears throat> because it's uplifting it's summery and so forth and so on but marjoram is too and it's a very different herb and mm -hmm. um and i love it in the summer i love sage and rosemary especially in the winter um and i grow marina di chioggia squash uh, which is the squash that was used in Italy, first of all, to make that wonderful um, dish of squash with sage and so forth, and brown butter and whatnot, um, which is really delicious. Radish greens, I it's not an herb particularly, but I mm -hmm. love it as a soup because that's where the nutrition is. It's in the greens. It's not so much in the roots. Um, oh, I'm trying to think of what else. Thyme, I, I have a hard time growing thyme for some reason, but I have a hard time growing mint too. <laughs> what, what? And the person I brought my mint from said, honey, if you can't grow mint, you can't grow anything. But I can't grow mint. I, it, and my neighbor can. It just goes wild in her place. And um, I've been using a lot of Otolenghi recipes, and he always calls for a lot of mint cilantro, mm -hmm. which I adore. Um, what, am I answering the question? Well, right? what are what are some of the the pairings like tarragon? Uh, I love I love tarragon and marjoram both with uh, like stewed or roasted peppers, for example. Oh yeah, um, those are great. What, yeah, what's your I What's your go to herb for potatoes? For potatoes, hmm, I love lovage. I'm crazy for lovage and potatoes together because potatoes are rather bland, you know, but lovage is so strong and it's zesty and it has that kind of wonderful combination of flavors of parsley and celery and so forth. Um, I love lovage and potatoes, but actually potatoes are good with all herbs. They'd be good with tarragon. They'd be good with basil. They'd be good with marjoram. They'd be good with chives, you know, with... Um, chervil with with just about anything um i love hard cooked eggs with herbs too mm. and again it depends on i mean to me herbs are the drivers of what what you're cooking you know they can they're the lively border mm. collies that can herd you know especially <laughs> when you think about the 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 umbilifers are have so many herbs in them like aniseed which is, I think, as delicious as a dessert herb. Why not? The embolifers also include what? Um, oh, a ton of herbs, almost as many as the mint family. Um, uh, uh, cilantro is, is one that they encourage. Now, of course, I live in the Southwest, so I do eat a lot of cilantro, and I love cilantro on just about anything. But... Um, I have to look up recipes to find out. Um, oh, t for your previous person who asked, I would also suggest a braised fennel dish. You know, if he likes fennel, fennel is a delicious vegetable, and it can be cooked, you know, on, you know, it can j just be cut into quarters and cooked very gently um, until it's done, and it's delicious, and it can be vegan easily. He can take it to work. He can eat it that way. Um, let's see. 
But I do love herbs, and I think they're so, so important because they can, they can take a, a vegetable in so many different directions. Carrots, for example. Carrots are completely different, whether they're cooked with cilantro or with mint, you know, or with aniseed or anything like that. Um, they're completely affected by the herb um, that they're cooked with. So, yeah, definitely. Go for herbs. Just try them all. So, uh, Chris, uh, to, to, to the person that asked the question, Chris, I would also say um, it's hard to go wrong. Um, I mean, there, there's very few combinations that I can think of. Actually, I, I can't think of one off the top of my head right now that just didn't work. And there's some that might not sing, but um, I, I, uh, Deborah, I love your comment that herbs are the uh, the charismatic border collie, the energetic border <laughs> collie that rounds up all the other flavors. I, I love that. Um, so I guess, Chris, to, from from my perspective, uh, you're never going to go wrong by putting mint on something. That's just that's my my take on on life uh, in general. Um, but just yeah, throw them in, and herbs are are best used in. Uh, Deborah, actually, you wrote this in the, in the book, um, uh, sparingly or in vast quantity. Um, you know, I, either make the herb part, uh, you know, I mean, it can be a subtle flavoring addition to the dish or it can be mm -hmm. a significant ingredient in the dish. And I tend to go Sure, towards... it can be a salsa verde, for example. You know, a salsa verde can be, a green sauce can be anything. It can be any kind of herb. It doesn't need to be necessarily parsley. Or parsley alone. It can also be basil and, you know, lovage and all kinds of things can be in the salsa verde that make it wonderful. Yeah. And very herbaceous. All right. Uh, question from Hilda. Uh, so Hilda is another, hi Hilda, it's nice to see you, uh, another regular uh, participant here. And uh, Deborah, I had been uh, exclaiming the virtues of agrimato. Uh, a while back, the olive oil that is pressed with citrus. Um, mm -hmm. So this is with lemon. Uh, and she picked it up and she said she loved it with a nice fresh salad, used it as a lamb marinade. Uh, but she asks if we have any other tips for using agrimato other than just a simple salad. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, olive oil is so good. My brother makes olive oil. And he does press it with a Meyer lemon or two, too. I would keep it where you can really enjoy it and appreciate it, you know, and especially that lemon part um, that comes out or the citrus, whatever it is. Um, I think a salad sounds lovely. I really do. I think it would be good with fish, don't you? I do. And in fact, yeah. if you saw where I keep it, which is right there, it's probably not where it's supposed to be kept. But I keep it because to remind me to use it. Um, that it's not precious. It's only precious if you make it precious. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I put it on a lot of things just, you know, as much as I just squeeze a little bit of Meyer lemon, which I always have on my cutting board uh, when in season. Um, yeah. Same thing with the agramato, a little bit on everything. So. Great. Yes. It would be good on everything. I can, I can't imagine where it wouldn't be good. That little zest of lemon would be so lovely, but you might you know, just use it on your salads on a nightly thing until it's gone. I mean, that would be okay, too. Yeah. You like so, Deborah, I, I thought of a question that I was curious in. Do you have, do you have a favorite salt? 
assault. I, I, I don't know. I, we always have a Malden sea salt on the table for finishing because um, I like its crunch and I like that it's salty. In fact, I, I like it too much. <laughs> My salt intake has gone up a lot. Um, otherwise, I tend to use um, a natural sea salt to cook with, you know, which mm. is fine. Um, and it dissolves and so forth when you add it to things, but it has a lot of complexity and it has good flavor. So I don't know what else to tell you um, aside from that, but those two are my go-to salts. And I you know, have a you... lot of salts that I've collected over the years too. You know, I mean, I used to always go to Hawaii, buy pink salt, you know, I've been in the airport and in Reykjavik, Iceland, and bought a tube of black salt, you know. Um, people bring me salt from Oaxaca, for example, and they're all very, very good and very different. Uh, I did, you know, while you were talking about Maldon salt, I just realized something, which is that we send our boy to daycare. Uh, one of the things he loves in his lunches is uh, just sliced tomatoes, um, and I'm not a fan of salting his tomatoes, you know, at 7.30 a.m. when we're making them. So we send him to school with a little container of Maldon salt. Oh. I, am that, I am that parent. <laughs> I, and I just realized that. I mean, not you know, but it's like, oh, my God. I'm, I am the parent that sends his four-year-old to school with Maldon salt. <sighs> it's a good thing oh, well. in the end. But, but yeah, I, I'm going to laugh at myself. Yes, he'll be one. spoiled and cultivated at the same time. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Okay. Uh, another question about um, uh, from Sarah. So when you're newly vegan, and I know that you've expressed you're not a vegan or even a vegetarian necessarily, what, but for vegans, which you're certainly competent in, in that, what are your go-to dinners when carryout is usually not healthy and uh, time is precious? Um, yeah. What, what would... Well, I, we seldom do carry out because it is so unsatisfying. But I did uh, what we have for dinner Friday nights, for example. We always have baked potatoes, <laughs> chipotle mayo. Is and it helps to have that, have something that you can rely on. Um, my husband loves fennel, so we do a lot of braised fennel. Um, the black eyed peas with tahini, I really love. Um, mm. All kinds of soups. Soups are easy. For me, that chard and saffron flan, um, celeriac is delicious. Celery root in all kinds of ways. I like it with a mashed potato. Um, <clears throat> uh, cabbage. I have cabbage written down as something that I have cooked on a lot of occasions because my husband loves cabbage. <laughs> so there you go. And we often do it very simply, you know, just braise with a little fresh dill. However, there is a red cabbage recipe, and, and I think my book, Vegetable Literacy, um, we, uh, that salad is lovely with lots of dill on it and red cabbage thinly sliced. And I, I can't remember what else all is in it right now, but I believe it's a vegan recipe. Um, the recipes I have that are vegan are usually labeled with a V. So people can find them. I'm not a vegan, so it's hard for me to answer that question, you know, in terms of what we do or what I do. Um, 
I mean, I love avocados. We have avocados all the time. You know, we always have avocados here in our house. And, you know, they might just be on toast and smashed with some Malden sea salt on top. And you know, squeeze a lemon or that wonderful lemon olive oil you were talking about earlier. Um, that would be delicious, I think. Avocado salad. And then in the late fall when we get our tomatoes, oh, you know, we go crazy. I love that um, eggplant gratin that I make. It, but I, I've had to change it. I now use make it with canned tomatoes. So it holds together. You can actually slice it in a wedge and put it on a plate. And, and, it's, and it's very different than what I used to make at Greens when we had fresh tomatoes and a lot of sauce would come off of them. So like that. Um, it's a little bit firmer and it's delicious. And is it vegan? I can't remember. It certainly could be. Well, uh, Sarah, some of the, the techniques that I, we use around the house, uh, part, of, part of this is, is because uh, of the bounty of dealing with the garden, that uh, I don't have time to do succession planting to the point like, I will have exactly two portions of broccolini available at this time on this day. And I was like, no, come hard and heavy, and you, you got broccoli. That's what you got. Um, I, I know a lot of uh, strategies for, for any sort of diet uh, is to, and, and not diet, but any sort of, uh, sort of conscious eating is to batch cook. But I found that batch cooking the grains, which is typically the, uh, the recommendation, gets boring. So what I do is I batch cook the garnish. I'll batch cook some broccoli. I'll braise it up with olive oil, tomato, garlic, some fennel, and some, you know, I, I go heavy on the chili. And I've got three quarts of braised broccoli. What use is that, you say? Well, one night I do a stir fry with some brown rice, so, you know, because the grains are typically easy to cook. How? Buy the $8 rice cooker. Yeah. Just, just do I, it I've... because it's good. <laughs> I actually tried that. I got a rice cooker for my husband that was very cheap. And I said, if you like it, we'll get a good one, you know, a really good one. And I think what I got didn't really work that well. But I, if you have a good $8 rice cooker, I'd like to know about it. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm very interested in grains, but mainly for bread. Um, for breads, I love. What what do you have there? That's, That's it. Instapot. Huh. I, I think we upgraded to the twenty four dollar one. Um, ah, I see. Okay, thank you. But uh, <laughs> but that idea that the, that the grains are very easy to cook because they're they don't really require a recipe or focus. Uh, they so, don't, but they're chewy and dense and difficult. I find. You know, unless you mix them with something that's very light. Like um, our grain group is hosting an event in a couple of weeks, and I was asked to make a grain salad. So I'm using a, a blue Tibetan naked barley with lots blue of Tibetan celery and pistachios and things in it that are exciting that will mitigate the heaviness of the grain because grains are very chewy even when they're, they're properly cooked. Um, so I grind them in my mill. I make bread. I love, I love the bread that I make with all kinds of grains. Some we grow, some we buy. Yeah. Is that your mock mill, Mac mill 200? That's my that you mock described? mill. 
Yeah, my Mach Mill 200 is wonderful. Well, and just to finish that, you know, you're, you're right. The, the grains are, are where a lot of the bulk of the nutrition and, and the balance of diet comes from. But this is why I don't cook them in bulk because well, you can get bored of them quite quickly. They, yeah. they can grow tiresome. But one night brown rice, one night lentils, one night quinoa, the next night barley, whatever it is, cooked in the rice cooker. And then I have this broccoli that's in a batch that can be mm. kind of used in different ways, uh, whether you're making a salad, whether you're making a stir fry of, of the rice, you know, fried rice dish, whatever it is. So to, to Sarah's question, sort of looking at what are those seasonal delicious flavor garnishes that you can pre-cook to save yourself time. Um, or she can also use tofu. I mean, I think I love tofu. I think tofu is delicious. I love it in a stir fry. I love the soft tofu, not the kind that comes in a box, but um, I think it's a Chinese house brand tofu that that's soft and that you can you can just put it on top of your bok choy or whatever and steam it and put a lid on it basically and let the let it cook like that and then serve it with a good soy sauce like a namu shoyu soy sauce. It's delicious. So awesome. that would be one. Well, Sarah, I hope that I hope that all helps. So diving into another question, Mary Jo D uh, asked, any ideas for some healthy accompaniments to humble baked potato to replace the highly calorific sour cream or butter? So, uh, Deborah, you had mentioned that just on Friday, baked potatoes uh, and chipotle mayo. Um, yeah. Any any other? Uh, no, I, I like the caloric. Um, <laughs> I like the caloric sour cream and butter actually. And I usually put a butter, some butter on mine. Um, I do it for my husband. I'd never had a baked potato growing up, believe it or not. And he, we were on our way to France once, and he's walking. I find him. They're calling our seats. Actually, they're calling our names. And he is strolling down, eating a baked potato down the run, you know, towards the plane at his own leisure. <laughs> and I thought, oh, dear. Well, anyway, baked potatoes, what we put on them, I don't know. I'm happy to have romesco sauce, but I'm also happy to have it very, very simple, just with butter and sour cream. You know, um, the chipotle mayo is delicious. Sometimes we make a bagnacota, you know, mm. warm sauce with anchovies and olive oil and put that on them. They're all very good. Yeah. I mean, baked potatoes are so neutral you know, that they can go with all kinds of sauces, you know, not just the Romesco sauce, whether it's fermented or not. I'm dying to know about that, how it comes out. <laughs> well, it, it's bubbling correctly, so. Oh, yeah. so it is. Okay. So. It smells good. Um, good. Um, so uh, one other thing that I would I would add to that list uh, for the baked potatoes, one, one of my very favorite dishes to eat is patatas bravas, uh, the great Spanish bar snack of deep fried potatoes sure. with a, a spicy tomato sauce uh, and aioli. Uh, but that just brought to mind the combination of potato and a spiced tomato sauce. It uh, works yeah. really well yeah. together because that blandness of the potato uh, could also be just looked at as canvas. Uh, and yes, the, it can. The, tart spiciness, but also mm -hmm. inherent sweetness of a good tomato sauce uh, mm -hmm. would be really nice for that. So, mm -hmm. And also salsa verde would be good too. Why not? 
you know, a yeah. little lemon olive oil would be great. <laughs> yeah. uh, or even, if, I, mean, I was thinking uh, hummus uh, would be would be quite nice. Uh, that you know, you were saying the the black eyed peas with with tahini sauce, but uh, uh, you know, hummus thinned out with a little bit of water, I think, would be delicious mm. to make it a little more saucy in consistency, so that it would work okay. and integrate into the baked potato. Would be really quite nice. Uh, garnish it a little smoked paprika or something over the top. Sure. Sure, um, definitely. Oh, smoked paprika is my go-to for everything, yeah. it seems. It always improves things. Yep, absolutely. So uh, Colette had had a qu asked a question. I'd love to know your thoughts on seasonal eating according to location versus the broad blanket healthy dish creations, uh, sort of regardless. So, um, you know, looking at a recipe in February as the – as sort of the direction rather than looking at the farmer's market at, at any time at being the process. So, and this got me thinking, Colette's question got me thinking about something I had, had wondered uh, while I was reading your, your, your memoir, uh, which is that process of recipe development. What are the, what are the things to check off like texture, sweet sour balance i mean etc things like that when you are looking to create a dish um, mm -hmm. and i think this speaks colette to the purpose of your question is how do we think about recipes um from that seasonal approach what makes a successful recipe different well <laughs> that's a hard question i mean i think that it does need to have a zinc quality to it um, something that's really delicious and and pokes and you know jabs and and uh, does that whether it's through acid or through a combination of ingredients or through herbs um, yes those kinds of things matter a lot um, since I always have herbs in my garden I'm just waiting now for them to come to fruition um, that's not a problem the other, the other, that little zingy quality is, is, well, smoked paprika will do it, you know, for a lot of things. Um, it's a long time, actually, since I've created a recipe. What are, what are the foundational elements of, of, of a good recipe? And, and you answered this to, to a great extent. I love the fact you were you just poked and poke and jab uh, as descriptors, <laughs> adverbs for what, uh, what, what acid does. Um, but I, I guess the question sort of speaks back to the beginning of our conversation today, which is um, just the, the importance of thinking locally, thinking of healthy as diversity and seasonal, uh, rather than going back to the tried and true sort of recipes that just because a tomato is healthy for you doesn't mean a February grocery store tomato is going to yield you the best result um no it's not you know so you definitely want to cook in season i mean cooking in season means to you maybe have tomatoes for three weeks of the year like we do here so you know the rest of the year you have to substitute some tomato product or um canned tomatoes or whatever is you know as need be um is necessary we're so limited in northern New Mexico. I mean, we have chilies, we have lots of corn products and, and so forth, but we, we don't have that great, you know, um, uh, 
table that we used to have in California, for example. And I think when people have that, they start, they get lazy. They don't think about, you know, what's, what's really fundamental and what's really important. And, um, I mean, working with the grain, for example, I see all these wild foods that I kind of want to try. And sometimes I do eat them like, um, like uh, kelites, which are greens or, or uh, wild spinach. Um, it's delicious, you know. And uh, I've noticed that some of the people who, um, who are native here take much more time with their food in making it edible. And that there's something to be said for that, too, that it's not just all easy all the time. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But I think, too, when you, when, if you really are local and you're thinking about what's to eat, for example, the radish greens and the soup, you know, you can use those. You should use them. That's where the nutrition is. Same with the turnip greens. And um, we used to do a turnip soup at greens at the restaurant, rather, greens, um, which people would never, ever order. And and we'd give it away, and then they would like it once we did that. So I think, you know, we need to get out of our comfort zone, look around at what's local. When If we have a bunch of radishes, don't throw the greens away. Cook with them if they're good, and they usually are, you know. Cool. Well, that's a great answer, I think, for Colette. And, uh, you know that that healthy comes in all forms. Healthy is ultimately foundation. The, the foundation of health is diversity, and uh, and that eating seasonally locally is advantageous in every way. Uh, you know, in and just we we have to put the time in sometimes, and and that's. Uh, but also that that aspect of gratitude being the most important ingredient in any recipe that uh, it, it begs us to consider our role in all this and to participate in our participation. So that's true. I th I agree with you. <laughs> we really from our markets, local and seasonal. We'd find you know I even though I like to complain about those red daikon that I had all winter long. I did learn how to cook them, you know, and I was grateful every Thursday when I picked up my bag of vegetables, and I kind of miss that now that I can go out and shop and buy things. But, you know, I'm really aware of how precious our food is and how our garden doesn't really yield very much, you know, even if we work very hard in it, it just doesn't. It's very limited. And um, so our seasons are limited. Well, you live in a place it gets very cold in the winter mm -hmm. okay yeah what do you yes. do <laughs> I, I i'm very grateful for bags of frozen vegetables we buy at big box stores to be completely honest um and uh it's it's just what we're able to do we're able to eat some canned food but uh like so many people we participate in just the modern reality I, that my wife and i are are able to afford land um and afford the time to work it is is an incredible blessing in the modern world that's not lost on us and um, we're like everybody else we we do what we can to get by so exactly so we were uh, we've come up to to time here and maybe a little bit over but uh 
thank you. There's a couple of questions that we're not going to get to. I appreciate some uh, some very kind comments from some of you uh, on this, and I hope that you'll join me again uh, for our regular Thursday events every other Thursday or so. Um, Deborah, you are an inspiration. You are a wonder. Uh, I, I am so honored that you chose to join us. And again, for all of you watching, please, um, Deborah, why don't you show your copy that has the, oh, uh, the okay. nice cover on it? Uh, <laughs> there it? you go. Yeah. An onion in my pocket, my life with vegetables, uh, is is a rewarding and delicious read. Uh, it, it is educational and spiritual in ways that are satisfying, like a good meal. I might say that my favorite part of it, and a recommendation to all of you students out there for Ruby, um, the last chapter is called Nourishment, and it's a section where Deborah writes about memorable meals that she's had in one way or another. And I would encourage all of you, especially the students, to, to do the same. Uh, keep a little journal and, and write with a literary sense about a meal, yeah. why, why it mattered, the context of it. Um, because you know what? Later on, you're going to wish you had that. Um, and those memories matter. <laughs> but uh, also, Deborah has uh, 13 other books, including my favorite of hers, which is Vegetable Literacy. Oh, just I love an that. incredible tome in education, Vegetarian Cooking for Everyone, and the new Vegetarian Cooking for Everyone. And so with that, I'll say, Deborah, thank you so much for joining us. And would you like to send us, send us off? Thank you, Barton. I appreciate you so very, very much and what you do. Um, I also wanted to say about that last chapter, it does mm -hmm. not include three-star meals yeah. at all. And I've had a lot of those because they're meant to be shocking and awing and, you know, to shock and awe you, basically. And these were meals that I just happened to remember. And many people said, how did you remember all these things? Did you take notes? And I said, no, I just remember, you know these things were important to me and they stood out and it and that's and what was important about those meals were the kindness with which they were given to me and um that's why i wrote about them not not whether there was meat or not or whether i liked the ingredients or not i was a guest you know it's different anyway i hope people enjoy the book if they read it and um and if not Whatever. <laughs> I'm sorry I couldn't answer questions better. No, you've been so wonderful and generous yourself with your time and joining us and our community. You are important. You are wonderful. You are delicious. And you are appreciated. So thank you so thank much. You. Thank you, Barton. All right, everybody. Take care. Join us again. And until then, have a wonderful and delicious time. We'll see you soon. Bye.